As I said a moment ago when I hopped up here, we are still in the introductory portion of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, to catch you up to speed briefly, false teachers have come among the church that Paul and his team helped plant just some year or so ago, likely, to undermine his authority, to undermine his apostleship, and to attack his doctrine. And so in the introduction where we still are camping out this morning, Paul is building his case for authority. He's reminding the Galatians why they can trust him, but not just because he wants them to like him, but because he wants them to be confident in the message that he has preached. He wants them to know that the gospel of grace is enough. He wants them to know that the gospel, the simple, undiluted truth of who Jesus is, what he's done, and why it matters, is sufficient for their salvation and their entire lives. False teachers are creating tension in the church, no doubt, but they're also capitalizing on pre-existing tension. If we take a step back and think about the Christian faith in its sort of world history, we know the Christian faith was delivered to the world through the Jewish people. And the first church, the church in Jerusalem, was almost entirely, if not entirely, Jewish. And so all the first Christians, historically speaking, were also culturally Jewish. Sometime later, Jesus, the risen Lord, appears to Paul as Paul was on his way to round up Christians and bring them back bound to be persecuted and likely executed. Jesus shows up and commissions Paul to go, instead of killing Christians, to go and preach the gospel to the Gentile nations. And so Paul begins a new chapter in earnest of redemptive history of the gospel, going away from just a Jewish thing to a whole world kind of thing. So now, just a few years later, the proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's done and why it matters is going to the nations. And there is this identity crisis, there is this social sort of tension that these false teachers are capitalizing on. There's a big identity crisis. The question looms, who are we? Who are we as the church? Is the church going to primarily be a thing for culturally Jewish people? Will the gospel be largely restricted to one culture in one place at one time and everyone else you can believe? But if you're going to believe, it means you're going to look like us, think like us, and talk like us. Paul is concerned with these questions because Paul understands the very future of the faith and the very heart of the gospel is at stake with how we answer these questions. He's concerned with the role of Gentiles in the church. Gentiles are just non-Jewish people like um, probably most of us in this room. He's concerned that the gospel of grace not be bogged down by unnecessary laws and traditions of man. Paul is concerned with really two things in the text, I think. Gentile freedom and the unity of the church. And in our text this morning, we'll see that though there be many peoples, there is but one gospel. Though there be many callings, there is but one caller. Praise God for the labor of the apostle Paul. But I would argue this morning the fight for gospel clarity that leads to a gospel people is not over. May we pick up that fight this morning. Look with me in verse 1. There are sort of just two broad portions of the text today, verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 10. 1 through 5 I've subtitled, Paul's crew, Jerusalem's leaders, and some false brothers. Paul's crew, Jerusalem's leaders, and some false brothers. And those three parties, those three units, are the sort of three units who will sort of play out in the text. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. 
Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now let me be honest with you from the outset. This is historically a notoriously difficult passage to interpret, but no, no matter where you come down on these syntactical or historical questions, I think the important theological principles are unchanging. When is this happening is the first question over much debate. And there's sort of generally two, amongst the Bible scholars, two beliefs. One belief is that the meeting that Paul references here, 14 years after what his conversion is calling, they disagree there, likely his conversion. Some are arguing that Paul is going to the Jerusalem Council. If you were with us when we read through the book of Acts, you remember the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was an opportunity for the church to get together and decide sort of finally, what are we going to do with this Gentile problem, right? What are we going to do with these people who want these Gentiles to be circumcised. But it is unlikely that this is the meeting that's happening. Why is it unlikely? Well, the text says what in verse 2? I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who were influential. So this is a private meeting in this text. What's more likely is that this is the trip that Paul and his crew were taking to perhaps deliver some famine relief that we see in Acts chapter 11. So there was a lot of poverty there in Jerusalem. They're bringing some relief from their church, and they're having these meetings with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. I don't think this is the Jerusalem council, because that would no doubt have been mentioned. The Jerusalem council was a public thing. This is a private thing. Nonetheless, Paul goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. If you pick up with me there, you haven't missed anything. Who is Titus? Well, Titus was one of Paul's converts, one of Paul's converts who became a close associate of the Apostle Paul. Titus also served as a sort of personal delegate for the Apostle, particularly as he walked through some difficult situations with the Corinthian church. And perhaps most significantly for our text today, Titus was Greek. So Paul brings these guys and Titus, a Greek Christian, with him to Jerusalem. The text says that he came to Jerusalem in response to revelation. What exactly is that revelation? He mentions in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Well, we're not exactly sure what that revelation was. It could be a few different things, but here's the point. Paul went to Jerusalem at God's call, not his own initiative and not the call of the apostles in Jerusalem. The important thing to note about this idea that Paul is responding to a revelation of God is that Paul is going to Jerusalem because God sent him, not because he felt he needed to go clear things up, and not because he felt the apostles needed to have a sit-down conversation with him. So he gets to Jerusalem, and he lays before some of the church's leaders. He'll kind of let us know who they are, Peter, James, and John. He lays before them, the text says, the gospel he has been preaching to the Gentiles. And so he wants to make sure that he had not been running in vain. What do we make of this idea that he may have been running in vain? Well, he surely doesn't question the content of the gospel that he's been preaching. But he still says he wants to make sure he hadn't been running in vain. He wants to make sure, I think, that he hasn't been lying to Gentile Christians when he tells them that they are truly one with their Jewish brothers. 
I think he wants to ensure Christian freedom for the Gentiles. I think he wants to make sure that the work he's begun amongst the Gentile people would not result in a Gentile church and a Jewish church being planted. And I think it's significant that in Paul's mind and in Paul's perspective, if the gospel that he's preached to the Gentiles would result in a Gentile church over here and a Jewish church over here, that the gospel he's preached would have been completely in vain. The New Testament is not about ethnic tension, but you cannot honestly read the New Testament and the problems that plague the church without seeing the significant role that tensions between groups of people, particularly ethnic groups of people, play in the development of the local church. And right here at this crossroads moment where a largely Jewish movement is going to become a largely Gentile movement, the church has a decision to make. In its earliest days, Christianity had to decide whether it would separate according to man's desires or whether it would unite according to God's will. And I would argue, I would make the case that we have to ask that question today. Will we separate according to man's desires or will we learn how to live together? Will we learn how to appreciate each other? Will we learn how to listen to people who don't look like me, who don't think like me, who don't have the same worldview or same upbringing as me? I would argue that we are at a similar crossroads today in our context. Is Christianity going to be for financially stable, middle-class people, or is Christianity going to be for people from all spheres of the economic scale? Is it going to be for people of all races? Is it going to be for people of all sin struggles? Or will we be a good old boys club for guys and girls who look real nice and talk real nice and know what to do on a Sunday and know when to raise their hand and know when to sing and know when to stand up and know when to sit down and know when to fake a smile when they don't want to smile and know when to say things are great when things aren't great and know how to live a Christian life without Christ? We live in a day and time where we literally have church services within single churches for old people and services for young people. We live in a day and time where we literally have churches for white people and for black people. We live in a world where we literally have churches for rich people and poor people. We wouldn't say that, but you try walking into the wrong church if you don't make enough money. We must remember that this gospel takes superficially incompatible people and teaches them how to be a family. That this gospel takes people who wouldn't normally be together, who wouldn't normally gather together, who wouldn't normally link arms together, and says not only are you supposed to be friends, but you're a family. And not only are you a family, but you're one body. This isn't easy. And if we learn anything from the New Testament, it wasn't easy. I mean, think about when the deacons are first called, these servant leaders in the church, what's happening? The Greek-speaking women in the church feel like they're being oppressed by the non-Greek-speaking people in the church. They think that the, the leaders are neglecting them because of cultural differences. And what do the apostles say? That might be right. We have to fix this. We have got to learn to embrace genuine diversity, and we are so far from there, it isn't even funny. We have to learn better how can we be multicultural, how can we be multigenerational, how can we be a church that most accurately reflects the kingdom of God in our city. It's not easy, it hasn't been easy, and it won't be easy, but I believe it's what God wants from us. 
Church, I think if we're running in different lanes, we're running in vain. Verses 3 through 5. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Again, verses 3 through 5 is a notoriously difficult text to interpret. There are questions abounding. One question is, when did this happen? Some scholars believe that uh, this spying out of Titus happened before they got to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced that that's the case. Likely, sometime during Paul's meetings with the church leaders, certain false brothers worked their way into those rooms. They worked their way into those meetings, and they made a big deal over the fact that Paul would bring an uncircumcised person, a non-Jewish person, into their church. How dare you bring a non-circumcised, one of those people among us. We are so offended. And if you really cared about the gospel, you wouldn't want to offend us by bringing that Titus in the room. (laughs) How did the false teachers come among them? The text says that they slipped in. They slipped in. I want to make the case that false teachers don't have false teacher written on their pulpits. They don't have false teacher written on their lectern. They don't have a name tag when they're giving you advice that says, don't listen to this advice, it's false and from Satan. But they come to you answering the questions that you want answered in the way you want them answered, and then your desires begin to overtake your faith, and your desires begin to steer you in a direction of a teacher that may or may not be looking out for your best interest. Are these teachers looking out for the best interest of Titus? No, the text says that they came to spy out their freedom in verse 4. Who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. And why did they do it? So that they might bring us into slavery. These false teachers worked their way into, oh, is Paul in town? Oh, thank goodness, I've got something to talk to him about. And they worked their way into these meetings with Paul and Titus and Barnabas, and they see Titus, and they probably don't make eye contact with him because they think they're so much better than him, right? And so they're, they're talking, and they're, they're, they're trying to, to, to convince the cohort that Titus would, in fact, need to be circumcised. They try to figure out what they're doing wrong and then try to figure out how they can enslave them by putting on them a burden that they were never intended to carry. So when faced with this conflict, when faced with this confrontation, does Paul say, you know what, unity is more important than anything, guys, and we really just need to get along. The fool says, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Paul says, Timothy or Titus, Come on in here, let's get circumcised. No, he doesn't say that. I can think about a thousand reasons why Titus wouldn't want to be circumcised, right? Paul doesn't make him get circumcised. The text says in verse 5, We did not yield in submission even for a moment. We didn't give a ground in rhetorical argument. We didn't see a point to them. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
led by the Spirit of God, Paul and his cohort discerned the will of God, and they did not budge when told to compromise on that. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. They knew that the gospel of grace was in a war with a man-made gospel of works. And they knew that being a Christian was not about circumcision, but it was about an inward change of heart. Compromising on this point would mean compromising on the gospel. And compromising on the gospel means compromising on our identity as a gospel people. So there's this showdown with Paul, his crew, the false teachers, and some leaders of the Jerusalem church. Now let's look in verses 6 through 10, which I've subtitled, Fellowship with Jerusalem. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, the West, real quick, the West Virginian in me, the Appalachian independent guy loves this verse. Because a couple weeks ago, I preached about how um, I'm a really bad Baptist uh, because I, I hate the word autonomy. I hate the idea that we are a local church and no one can tell us what to do. I don't think that's true. I mean, if the Apostle Paul completely understood the church as an interdependent body of bodies, but the Apostle Paul also was not impressed with Jerusalem. He did not believe that his calling as an apostle had to be confirmed by anybody because he knew God had showed up to him. And listen to what he says. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. I love Paul's confidence in his calling. He didn't need the accolades of guys with bigger platforms. They seemed important. (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty important, right? That's Peter, you know. That's James. That's Jesus' brother. They seemed important, but what they are makes no difference to me. Here's a quick reminder for you. Whether other people see you or not, doesn't really matter whether people with more Christian credentials than you recognize God's grace in your life or not doesn't in some sense doesn't matter because God sees you God knows you and God loves you these important people didn't add anything to Paul they didn't correct him they didn't set him straight on any theological issues they didn't challenge his apostleship they didn't challenge his calling the text says that Paul came and laid the gospel that he preaches out before him. He said, listen, guys, whenever I go into a town, this is what I preach. This is what I say. Let's talk about it. And the text says that the the apostles added nothing to him. They didn't correct him. They didn't set him straight on any of these theological issues. On the contrary, they recognized that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the Galatians. The text says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. That's kind of a mouthful, but it's pretty simple. They recognized that just as Peter had been given a calling, a calling, that's the West Virginia, just as he'd been given a calling to the Jewish people, Paul had been given a calling to the non-Jewish people. This is a whole other kind of service we're going into right now. I don't know if we want to go there. They concluded that Paul may have had a different calling, but they had the same caller. They extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, and in so doing, they rescind the hand of fellowship from those who wanted an ethnically pure church. 
Paul is reminding the Galatians, as we zoom out and remember why Paul's even telling this story, why Paul's even reminding the Galatians of these truths, he's reminding them that his apostleship is just as valuable, it's just as authentic, it's just as real as Peter's. And why does that matter? So that they can trust him because his authority is fixed. It's determined by God. They can bank on the gospel of grace that he has preached. They don't need people from Jerusalem to come to Galatia and tell them about how to be a Christian because Paul has instructed them in the gospel. He has left them. They are filled with God's spirit. They are living together the Christian life. They don't need these false teachers to come and lay on them more requirements than already supposedly exist. They can bank on this gospel of grace he has preached. This is foundational to the rest of the letter. And I love verse 10. Worship team, if you guys want to come on up. Verse 10. Only They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. After this meeting where they work out these theological issues, they are going back and forth on what it means at its heart to believe and respond to this gospel. At the end of that meeting, Peter, you're going your way, man. You are you are preaching the gospel to the circumcised, meaning there are people around us, the circumcised people, culturally Jewish people, whose only hope for eternity and whose only hope for this life is Jesus, and they desperately need to hear the gospel. So Peter, you are leading that charge. You are going out and you're preaching the gospel to the circumcised. And Paul, we know that the world is a big place, and that there are so many ethnic groups, there are so many groups of people in the world. And Paul, your calling isn't to go to the circumcised, the Jewish people, but it's to go to the uncircumcised. It's to go to the people who feel like outsiders. It's to go to the people who are outsiders in one sense. And it's to preach the good news of Jesus that God has drawn near to them. It's to preach the good news of Jesus, that salvation is for every man, woman, boy, and girl, and it's found in Jesus Christ, not in any one place or in any one culture. So Peter, you've got your calling. Paul, you've got your calling. But neither of you forget the poor. But neither of you forget the sorts of things that bind you together. There might be a specificity in my calling or a specificity in your calling that's somewhat divergent. Right? My role as our lead pastor is a specific calling that not everybody shares. Right? Sending out Kenny as an example, as a missionary to, uh, to unreached people groups in, in India. Right? That's a calling that is good and it's not my calling. Right? But we need that calling. We need this calling. We need each other. But there are certain things right, that aren't like, oh, I'm not called to do that. Oh, I would, you know, help poor people, but I'm not called to that. I would love people around me, but I'm not called to that. You can't pull that card because it's not true. Remember the poor. Perhaps, he says this because they're bringing money with them to the poor in Jerusalem. That would make sense. Perhaps he's reminding them that there are people around them who have physical needs, and don't forget those physical needs needs. Just remember to love the poor. Love the least of these. I think if you read through the scriptures, 
You see over and over again a God who has harsh words for religious people who get so caught up in theological debate that they forget the poor among them. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, I don't know why it's a favorite, it's a terrifying, beautiful passage of Scripture is in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 23 through 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. These are the words of Almighty God to his people who think they're getting worship right. They're bringing the fattened calf. They're playing the best music. They got the most people. Everything is rocking and rolling in the worship life of God's people. But God isn't pleased. He says, why do you all desire my coming? Because my coming for you guys is not going to be pretty. It's going to be dark. I despise your feasts. I even despise your potlucks. I despise your sacrifices. I despise when you move your lips in confession just to go and oppress the people around you. I despise when you act like you're giving me your life in a worshipful moment and then go out the door and trample on the people in your life. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Unplug the guitar and stop it. Verse 24, the Lord Almighty says, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let justice roll down like the waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Church, there are many callings in this room together. But there's one caller, that God has called us to himself in love and in grace. He's called us to himself and he's attached us to himself, but if we are the bride of Christ as the church, that means we are knit together with one another and then knit together with God. To be attached with Christ is significant, but there is no New Testament category for being attached to Christ and casually being about the local church. Praise God for the labor of the Apostle Paul, but the labor must continue. Because gospel clarity, that the Christ event and the God-given meaning thereof will create a people who are not of this world, will create a people who the world would never put together, and this people are to be God's agents. They're to be God's people. They're to be the ones who look like they're not from around here in the sense that they care about the poor. They care about justice. They care about the people in their lives. They're peacemakers in a world that wants to divide. They are showing the realities of where they're from, and that is God's kingdom. We are a kingdom people called to God in Christ Jesus. And we must live in this 
reality. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are reminded of the struggle that took place in Galatia. We're reminded of the false teachers who were trying to tell the Galatians that you got to be basically Jewish to be a Christian. We're reminded the Apostle Paul fought that battle with these false teachers in Jerusalem. We're reminded that you don't put any obligation on us to be of a certain culture or of a certain appearance to be your children. Lord, I pray that though we have many callings in this room, you will knit us together in a supernatural unity that can't come from a well-crafted mission statement. It can't come from a facility. It can't come from a genre of music. It can't come from a style of preaching, but it can only come from the living Spirit of God dwelling in and among us. Lord, I ask that you would not make us a cookie-cutter church, a, 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 just a particular type of it. You would push me out of my comfort zone. You would push us out of our comfort zone, and you would teach us how to have dinner with people who don't look like us, how to love people who don't think like us, and how to see the gospel, these issues of first importance, the truth that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, rose again for the sins of the world, that we can keep this gospel at the center and at the forefront of who we are. And I pray, Lord, that you will do a work among us that points to your kingdom, that points to the day where justice will reign because you have your way over the whole earth and every man, woman, boy, and girl are equal in your eyes and loved. And I pray that we would proclaim this kingdom and live out the implications of our citizenship therein. In Christ's name I pray, amen.